nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, a Nuclear Hot Seat exclusive an interview with Lucas Hickson, a nuclear researcher with a special focus on how radioactive materials move through the environment. Lucas just got back to the U.S. following his work at the Chernobyl site. He shares insights about Chernobyl and the new confinement structure that you will not hear on mainstream media or anywhere else. Lucas also makes a strong connection between what's been happening in Ukraine at Chernobyl and what needs to happen in Japan at Fukushima. Plus, our regular numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, the nuclear reactor duck and cover report on what's gone wrong this week at those aging rust buckets, and more honest information about nuclear than was allowed to be discussed during last Thursday's Thanksgiving dinner. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, November 29, 2016, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. The big story this week, and it's really big, is that the Chernobyl Arch has been moved into place, completely surrounding the sarcophagus which surrounded the remains of the 1986 nuclear accident that happened there. Called by the officials the new safe containment, note the brandable use of the word safe in there, we here at Nuclear Hot Seat prefer the new containment structure. It is the largest movable land-based structure ever built. 14 stories high, the equivalent of one and a half football fields in length, with a span of 843 feet, which is the same as two and a third football fields. More than 40 countries contributed to the Chernobyl Shelter Fund, which now completely surrounds the remains of the April 26, 1986 explosion that wrecked Reactor 4 at the site. We have a time-lapse video up on the website, NuclearHotSeat.com, so you can see this amazing one-time-only event of snapping a huge building into place. However, there are some issues in the wake of this event that have not been discussed or exposed on mainstream media, and that's what our interview today will be about from someone who was on the ground at Chernobyl in both 2015 and 2016, up until just a few weeks ago. But as one Russian-built nuclear reactor is gotten under cover, there may be another major problem in store. Locals in Russia reported a powerful explosion at the Novoronyes nuclear power plant. This according to Russian ecological media, Bologna.ru. At the same time, Russian state-owned media traditionally kept extremely silent regarding the details of the incident. In particular, news agency RIA Novosti reported that the sixth power unit of Novovoronye's nuclear power plant was disconnected from the grid due to failure of the power generator. But Bologna reports... Turning off the sixth unit at the night of November 10 was preceded by an explosion that smashed the turbine hall. Alarm systems in all vehicles in the area were screaming for at least 15 minutes. The generator in the turbine hall of the sixth unit burned down beyond repair. 
Also, a transformer blown and all electrics burned. A state commission is working at the station. The situation is an emergency. In South Africa, a new geological report discusses the hazards at a proposed South African nuclear power station site and says that it is at risk for a Fukushima-like nuclear disaster. The report says that it would be nearly impossible for ESCOM, a South African electricity public utility, to construct the nuclear power station safely at Feispunt, near Jeffreys Bay, because of deep, hidden canyons in the bedrock covered by sand and soft rock. Martin DeWitt, director of the Africa Earth Observatory Network and a professor at the Nelson Mandela Metropolitan University, has produced this new report, which states that the site is prone to storms, sea level rise, and tsunamis, and that there are currently dormant fault lines near the site that could activate, causing earthquakes and submarine landslides, and this could cause a significant localized tsunami. And here's the kicker. The study was corroborated by another study from a Ph.D. candidate at Nelson Mandela Metropolitan University. It was the work of a geology master's student. That's right. It was a student paper. Gold star and an A+, plus plus a kick in the pants for ESCOM, which looked at all the same data and missed the most important things about it. Another one of those nuclear gosh darn experts gets it wrong. In Switzerland... People voting in a referendum have rejected a proposal to introduce a strict timetable for phasing out nuclear power. The plan, backed by the Green Party, would have meant closing three of Switzerland's five nuclear plants next year, with the last shutting down in 2029. After the Fukushima nuclear disaster in Japan, the Swiss government said it would gradually move the country towards renewable energy by 2050, 2050. The government said nuclear plants should continue to operate as long as they are deemed safe, but did not provide a definition for the word safe. It's a relative term. And a reminder that in last week's nuclear hot seat number 283, we reported that the operator of Switzerland's nuclear reactors, Alpique, reportedly offered reactors to France's EDF at no cost or a symbolic franc, and the French refused the offer. In Scotland, another case of nuclear seaweed terrorism. You'll like this one a lot, Larch Hansen. Seaweed has again blocked cooling and shut down the Scottish nuclear power station at Torness, located only 33 miles from Edinburgh. The reason? Seaweed. An increase in seaweed levels that entered the station's cooling water intake system and blocked it cutting off the necessary flow of 40 cubic meters or 40,000 liters per second. It's not the first time. Seaweed blockage of cooling water intake at Torness is reported to have occurred in 2006 and 2013, with jellyfish blockage occurring in 2011. Hunterston B near Glasgow was shut down due to seaweed in the summer of 2015, It remains a concern for Hinkley Point, and seaweed blocked the Leningrad nuclear power station water intake in October of 2015. Other blockages took place at a Swedish nuclear power station in October of 2013, and jellyfish, those spineless jellyfish, had the courage to stand up to Diablo nuclear power station in California and in Japan, blocking intake and forcing shutdowns. We'll have links up to two articles on the website this week. Alice Slater of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation has an article on Seeking Nuclear Disarmament in Dangerous Times. And Dianuke.org has posted Genocidal Cynicism, which is the late Fidel Castro's reflection on nuclear weapons. Over to the U.S. and Illinois, where Chicago-based Nuclear Energy Information Service sent a strongly worded letter to state officials warning of no rational basis for the Exelon nuclear bailout. Calling it a wealth transfer of billions of dollars from Illinois ratepayers to Exelon shareholders, NEIS's Dave Kraft said, 
We believe that not only is Exelon not deserving of a bailout for its own business failures, but the legislature itself has failed to do its due diligence on the matter before taking the easy way out and letting Exelon undeservedly pick ratepayers' pockets. He went on to say, When is the legislator going to approve an equally thorough examination of the detrimental effects on the renewable energy and energy efficiency community in Illinois? which currently supports five times more jobs in Illinois than all of the Exelon reactors combined? And when will they examine this multi-million dollar nuclear bailout and a 10-year legislatively imposed rate hike? Those 1,114 Illinois workers would like to have that question answered, too. Nuclear reactor duck! (laughs) And cover report. What does the Nuclear Regulatory Commission say has gone wrong at nukes this week? At Farley in Alabama on November 27, there was a manual reactor trip with automatic auxiliary feed water system actuation due to voltage oscillations. Sounds like an electric mood swing. Farley's on hot standby. <coughs> At Fermi in Michigan on November 28, high wind conditions again. Secondary containment inoperable. This is reportable as an event or condition that could have prevented the fulfillment of a safety function needed to control the release of radioactive material. (coughs) And Monticello in Minnesota on November 27, high-pressure coolant injection declared inoperable, a condition that could have prevented the fulfillment of a safety function at the time of discovery. The NRC's words, not mine. Duck! (coughs) And now... Nuclear hot seat... Well, the head of the Environmental Protection Agency, Gina Never Met a Nuke I Didn't Like and Cover for McCarthy, is at it again. She insists that drinking water and public safety will be protected after a nuclear emergency. What she doesn't do is define what safety means in this context. She's on the verge of approving the misnamed Protective Action Guides, or PAGs, which don't protect anything except perhaps her posterior. They allow radiation levels hundreds and thousands of times higher than currently allowed in drinking water at cleaned-up Superfund sites. Her reasoning? The PAGs are not for the immediate phase after a radioactive release, but for the next phase, which could last for years. That's when local residents may return home to contaminated water and not know the danger. And, of course, they won't know the danger because the EPA will have nicely covered it up in advance. To give you an idea of what's taken place, the PAG from 2009 lists 107 radioactive materials. The most recent PAG from 2016 lists only three. For each material, it lists at a maximum level. And at that level, government agencies or rescue queues must provide bottled water or evacuate residents. So, hey, let's minimize the risk that the government has to provide bottled water for its citizens in case of a nuclear accident. Daniel Hirsch, director of the Program on Environmental and Nuclear Policy at UC Santa Cruz and and an early supporter of Nuclear Hot Seat, accuses the agency of trying to, quote, sneak the plan through. He's concerned that the levels in the Protective Action Guide are drastically higher than the Safe Drinking Water Act. Hirsch said, when I looked at the table of numbers that they were proposing and compared them to the safe drinking water levels, I almost fell off my chair. I've never before seen someone increasing by a factor of 1,000, by 10,000, or 100,000. I've never even seen numbers like that. And at first, I thought it must be a misprint. It isn't. They're actually proposing increases that large. But the EPA administrator has said, we have more at issue right now in terms of radiation. We have the little bombs that can happen. Little bombs? Are these nuclear bombs or truth bombs, Gina? Because, you know, based on what I've just shared with the listeners, it's very clear that once again, 
Gina never met a nuke I didn't like in cover for McCarthy. You are this week's nuclear hot seat. None that's out of week. Over to Japan, where the 311 Children's Fund for Thyroid Cancer said on Monday that it will pay part of the medical costs for young patients in Fukushima Prefecture and elsewhere in Japan who are facing thyroid cancer. People aged 25 years and younger who have been diagnosed with thyroid cancer, including suspected cases, are eligible for the aid as long as they are residents of Fukushima or one of the 14 other prefectures in eastern Japan. They'll receive up to 200,000 yen, or the equivalent of just under $1,800 U.S. We'll have today's Chernobyl exclusive interview in just a moment. But first, Nuclear Hot Seat relies on your donations to keep bringing you the nuclear news you won't hear anywhere else. I'll have more to say about this after this week's featured interview. But as you listen, ask yourself... Where else would you be able to get the kind of information that you are hearing? And if you can't think of any place else, that's a clear sign for you to do what you can to support our ongoing work by making a donation at NuclearHotSeat.com. Lucas Hickson is a nuclear researcher with a special focus on how radioactive materials move through the environment from all the stages of the nuclear fuel cycle. He's also the editor-in-chief for Informable Nuclear News and a board member of the nonprofit organization Beyond Nuclear. This November 2016 marked his second year as part of a U.S.-led coalition of experts and professionals working and studying hand-in-hand with the workers at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. Lucas and I originally spoke on Thursday, November 10, when Lucas called me from Slavudich, the worker town of 25,000, only 39 miles from the radioactive remains of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. We spoke repeatedly over the last two weeks since he got back to the United States, and only last night, when word came that the new containment structure was in place over Chernobyl, did we record the interview you are about to hear. I'm excited to be able to share it with you now, a nuclear hot seat exclusive on Chernobyl. Lucas Hickson, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you for having me, Libby. You were recently in Chernobyl, and this was not your first time there. What was your reason for going there, for being there, and how did this all come about? Well, for the past few years, I've been fortunate to be a participant in an international team of experts that's gone over to be part of a vocational training program at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. And it's been a unique opportunity for us to share information and experiences with the workers at Chernobyl and to really see firsthand the consequences of trying to mitigate a severe accident like the one we saw in 1986. What were the kinds of things that you were bringing to the table and what was the nature of the information that you were learning about the site? Here in the United States, I own a company called Environmental Services, where we track and monitor the spread of radioactive materials in the environment over time. And Chernobyl was a very unique case study and and learning experience for me personally in that light. But when I got over there, I started to realize some of the -the on-the-ground realities that a lot of us don't think about or take for granted. In the wake of the accident, you know, there were radioactive materials that were strewn around the plant site. And there are areas to this day over a mile away from the plant where you can be walking in radiation levels hundreds of times background. In the United States, we have some contaminated areas, but the majority of them are inside of buildings and they can be roped off and fenced off and the doors can be posted with signage. And that's not really a reality that they have on the ground at Chernobyl. So it really is a different type of experience in terms of worker safety and worker exposures. Um, You you know, you're dealing with, with conditions that are still difficult at best. What does it mean to decommission a site like Chernobyl? Well, I think that's a really important question, uh, especially with where we're at today. Officially, the decommissioning and decontamination 
shouldn't end until all of the melted nuclear fuel has been recovered and the majority of the contamination in the environment has been reclaimed. That's when we would consider a site to be restored. At Chernobyl, we've spent the last 30 years building a sarcophagus and then a new confinement structure over top of it. And there's a lot of concern at the plant today that after the new confinement structure, which has just moved in place over the old 1986 sarcophagus, that the international community is essentially going to wash their hands clean and walk away from Chernobyl. But the truth is, is that this is when the work really should start to begin. We've spent the last 30 years trying to prepare conditions that would allow us to begin to dismantle the sarcophagus and to begin exploring, identifying, and recovering the melted nuclear fuel in the sarcophagus. So, yes, we have reached a historic turning point here with the construction of the world's largest movable structure and the fact that we've moved it in place over the sarcophagus, but now is when the most vital and critical work at the power plant should begin. And there's a question about where the funding is going to come from to do these operations. You know, the Ukrainian government is not going to be able to cover these costs alone. And there really has been no unified effort by the international community to provide long-term assistance to the Chernobyl nuclear power plant to conduct these operations. So this week, the new confinement structure did in fact move in place over the existing sarcophagus. You know, that was a, a big engineering quest to even construct this new structure in the first place. It's the largest movable structure in the history of mankind, and it brought with it some engineering difficulties. Tell us about some of those difficulties. The uh, structure ended up being a little bit overweight. We don't know exactly how much overweight, but we know it was over the design basis. And there's also some concerns about the structural stability. It was constructed in two halves and joined in the middle. And that seam is good for now, but we don't know how much additional tension or stress it can take. One of the things I think that the staff at the plant are going to be monitoring is how this structure reacts over time. I think in the spring, as the temperatures warm up and they start to get some rain and it starts to affect the soil a little bit, they will watch that structure and see if it settles or if there's any subsidence around the plant, and they'll take measures based on what they see there. What would this subsidence, if it does take place, or subsidence, as I always pronounced it in my head, what would this do to the structure if even a slight amount happens? You just have to keep in mind that when the plant was originally sited and constructed, they never planned to put a concrete and steel sarcophagus over top of it. And on top of that, they never planned to put an additional confinement structure on top of that. So there is a lot more weight in this area than was originally designed for. Now, they have taken additional steps. They have put in concrete pilings underneath the confinement structure. But any site of settling or moving could alter the positioning of the new confinement structure, and it could add undue stress to certain areas of that structure. It could affect the way that it fits against the existing uh, sarcophagus and turbine building. So that's something that we'll want to monitor over the next year or so, is just to see how that structure behaves over time. One can argue semantics as to whether Chernobyl is the worst nuclear disaster that ever happened on this planet or whether it was the worst until Fukushima happened five and a half years ago. Be that as it may, how do the events that have been taking place in Chernobyl relate to Japan? We can talk about the environmental release of radiation, and that's something that, unfortunately, we have to leave up to estimates and calculations. We don't have fixed numbers as to the total inventories released from Chernobyl or Fukushima Daiichi. But what I can say is, in terms of the decommissioning and the response, in terms of mitigating the severity of the accident, Fukushima is going to be much more difficult to deal with. You know, at Chernobyl, they're dealing with one structure, and for the most part, they know where the nuclear fuel is. At Fukushima, you've got three reactors that had meltdowns, 
and they have yet to locate the majority of the fuel in those three reactor buildings. So I think you look at the timetable of events that's happened at Chernobyl, and that's a best-case scenario for Japan. You know, at Chernobyl, they had stemmed the majority of the environmental releases within the first few months. And here we are five years later after the March 11th disaster, and there's still substantial releases taking place from the Fukushima reactors, both into the ocean and into the atmosphere. And TEPCO doesn't really have a plan in place the same way that the Soviet Union did in 1986 to kind of control those releases. It's a different set of circumstances, and that's definitely going to make things more complicated in terms of the reconstruction and decommissioning of that site. But TEPCO is also going to be faced with the same financial difficulties as the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. When you have a power producing facility like this, when you stop producing power, you also stop generating profits. So where are the funds going to come from for these activities? That's something that has been faced at Chernobyl, and that's something that TEPCO is obviously facing now. And I expect over the next few years, we'll see a series of moves that will start to remove control and ownership for Fukushima from the utility and begin a transition, I would expect, that would ultimately end up with the national government. In terms of Japan... Is there a chance or would it be feasible to put a sarcophagus around the structures at Fukushima, as was done in Ukraine? I don't think that it would serve the same purpose. At Chernobyl, the majority of the releases were taking place directly into the atmosphere, and there was no confinement structure, as we have in some of the more recent designs uh, in Japan and the United States. Putting a sarcophagus-like structure over top of them would stem the majority of the atmospheric releases, but it's not going to do anything in terms of helping them to stem the subsurface aqueous releases of contamination into the ocean. Additionally, the ground near the ocean in Japan is much less stable than in Ukraine. I don't know that it would necessarily be able to handle the sheer weight of one of these structures. And lastly, it's also going to make it more problematic for them to conduct operations to actually locate the fuel materials. You know, I've had a lot of conversations with colleagues in the industry about this issue. In the Soviet Union in 1986, they were forced to use bio-robots, human liquidators, to go in and, and actually locate these fuel materials. And that very well may be what Japan is forced to do as well. It seems that the robots are not adequate in being able to carry out this mission. And it really is of vital importance to understand the current position and location of these fuel materials inside of the reactor building. And of course, the exposure that those early liquidators went through gave them horrific health problems that have shown up in both the early deaths, the later deaths, the illnesses, and the mutations that have been passed on in the generations since the Chernobyl nuclear accident happened. These are the consequences of a severe accident, which are the implications of operating this technology. It's something that oftentimes is too odious for most people to spend a lot of time thinking about. But it's a reality in Ukraine, and it's, it's a growing reality in Japan. At the end of the day, these materials need to be located, they need to be identified, and we need to do whatever is necessary to carry out those missions. And if the robots are incapable of doing that, the only thing that history has shown us is that the bio-robots, the human liquidators, are capable of doing that, and there is a cost that is paid at the same time. You told me when we were talking before this interview, that you were staying in a town of about 25,000 that has grown up to house the workers and their families and the support services that are there. Now that the new containment structure has been placed over Chernobyl, what's the future for those workers, that town... Are there still plans in place to continue the work, or is there going to be a stepping away from any further work on Chernobyl? Because, phew, we got through that and we've got the containment structure over. You alluded to this earlier, but I'd like to go in a little bit deeper. I think that you're really tapping into the current 
stream of concern at the plant, which is the difference between the international perspective and the local understanding of the on-site conditions. Right now, there is no real program in place for the next stage of decommissioning. They have a rough outline for how the whole decommissioning procedure should go, but there's no funding in place, the equipment is not in place, and they're not prepared to begin the next step in the decommissioning process, which is going to be breaking down the sarcophagus, dismantling it in a controlled environment, and beginning to recover some of the contaminated equipment. What people don't think about is that the Chernobyl nuclear power plant is going to become a permanent nuclear waste repository. And this future is the same for Fukushima Daiichi. When we would be siting a new nuclear waste repository, these are two of the last locations we would ever pick. Chernobyl's in the middle of a swamp, right alongside major drinking water supplies and a very valuable aquifer for the whole region. And Fukushima is right alongside the ocean in a seismically active zone where the mountains are behind them and there's elevation. Neither of these are places that we would put a permanent waste repository. But as a result of these severe accidents, that's exactly what's going to happen. So at Chernobyl, sure, then they understand that the next step is going to be decommissioning the, the sarcophagus and beginning to recover highly contaminated equipment and fuel. But where are those materials going to go? They're going to have to be stored somewhere on site, and we should be better prepared and planning for a long-term management because these things are going to require some type of control for thousands of years. So it's about time that we stop thinking in terms of five or 10 or 15-year projects, and we begin looking at the long-term developments and goals of this decommissioning process. So there's a lot of concern at the plant and in the town because they don't see this framework being put in place. And they are concerned that now that the new confinement structure has moved in place at the international community, their attention and their assistance is going to turn to other issues of the day and that they're going to continue to forget about Chernobyl. So this is something that I think the international community needs to be more aware and cognizant of and that hopefully that we get some more support on a federal level from different governments to Ukraine to purpose these long-term decommissioning activities. Is there space inside of the containment structure, the new one, where some of the waste can be parked at least in the interim until something more permanent is figured out, should there even be such a thing? Well, I think that current space is the sarcophagus itself, where these materials currently lie. Uh, the new confinement structure is a laser-cut fit over the existing sarcophagus, so there is no room there for additional storage. You know, these materials are going to require special handling when they pull them out. Uh, if it's contaminated equipment, they're going to need a decontamination pad to, to remove as much of the removable contamination as possible. So that's also going to involve its own solid and liquid waste generation. And then there's also going to be worker uniforms that have to be cleaned up after this. And then the actual materials themselves are going to have to be wrapped either in some type of plastic adhesive or plastic wrap and stored uh, in some type of controlled setting, preferably indoors. Right now, a lot of the contaminated equipment from the early response at the plant is lying scattered around the woods around the reactor building itself. This is not an acceptable long-term situation, but it is the on-the-ground reality there today. So we're looking at a significant burial site. And the other question that they're asking in Ukraine, well, if we're going to be building a permanent nuclear waste repository here, why should we build another one for the nuclear waste from our other reactors? So they are considering consolidating all of their national nu nuclear waste at this on-site permanent repository. On top of that, there were four operating reactors at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. And the spent fuel from the other three operating reactors is all currently sitting in one combined fuel storage building on site. And one of the safety inspectors from this site, who now works as a trainer, described this facility as a nuclear bomb. Now, Japan, already at Fukushima, has a centralized storage facility, and they've had a lot of the same issues. You put a bunch of these bundles together, 
and they require close management. You have to watch the temperatures. You have to watch the water levels. And these fuel assemblies are not meant to be stored underwater for long periods of time. So the faster you can get them out of spent fuel pools and get them into dry casks for long-term storage, the better. So at Chernobyl, they are starting to construct an on-site facility to transfer these spent fuel assemblies from wet pool storage into dry cask storage. But all of this is going to increase the overall footprint of the ultimate waste repository. And it's going to be significant. At Japan, I don't actually know where they're going to physically put it. It might have to be on the other side of the mountain range, on the other side of the ocean. But it's not going to go far away from the plant because there's no reason to condemn more land in an already landlocked country. Lucas, you said that this was not the end of your visits to Chernobyl, that you were planning or at least hoping for another trip coming up, certainly in 2017. What are your intentions? What are your plans regarding this next trip? You know, we are looking at moving forward in 2017 and with a new direction. For the last few years, I've gone to Chernobyl and I have brought back so much. And when I get back to the United States, I give lectures or speeches on my time in Chernobyl. And after these events, people will come up to me or people will email or call and they'll say, you know, you opened our eyes to something, but what can we do? And I've never had a good answer for that. So this year, when I spent such an extended period at Chernobyl, I really started looking at the need of the workers in this area in different ways in which I could provide some type of assistance that would have a meaningful impact in their lives. After getting back from Chernobyl, uh, some of my colleagues and I have started a nonprofit organization called the Clean Futures Fund. And our goal is to provide humanitarian assistance to affected communities like the workers at Chernobyl to support them during these long periods of reconstruction and redevelopment after severe accidents. So in 2017, we've identified two programs that we're hoping to conduct at the power plant. One is to increase the amount of medical care that's provided to the workers, both that currently work at the site and also that are retired, and to help provide better equipment and staffing for their medical care to make sure that they are provided the adequate level of care, considering the high hazard work that they conducted for so long. But another aspect of our program that I'm really excited about is related to the dogs of Chernobyl. Most people are unaware that there are over 200 wild dogs that live at the power plant and that access nearly all of the areas of, of the site, including some of the indoor controlled areas. These dogs are the descendants of the pets of the residents of Pripyat and the exclusion zone before they were evacuated. Now they've been driven to the power plant, partly, I think, because of a lack of food available in the exclusion zone, but also because of the wolves that have taken over the, the local area. And these dogs live at the power plant and rely on the workers to survive. The workers will feed them with scraps from their own meals. And if the worker sees a sick dog or a newly born puppy that's sick or not doing well, they will bring those animals in out of the environment into one of the buildings where they can kind of keep a closer eye on them. It really is a powerful scene to see these workers and these dogs interact. The dogs are not familiar with humans and really only because of their need for food. The problem is, is that you feed the dog, you take care of the dog, and the first thing that it does is it goes and reproduces. And now you have a whole new litter of puppies that's coming along, two, three, or four new dogs that now require the same level of care. And so the dog population is growing, and they're also being exposed to rabies from the wolves in the exclusion zone. So we're raising funds right now to purchase rabies vaccinations, as well as to get the medical supplies to spay and neuter these animals. And in 2017, I'm hoping to take a team of American veterinarians to the Chernobyl nuclear power plant to conduct these medical operations and hopefully provide a more humane assistance to these animals in the long-term care. This is something that I'm really excited to be able to do in conjunction with the nuclear power plant. We see it as an important activity, and I think it's something that definitely can be affected by people here in the States. 
We'll give information on the nuclear hot seat site under this episode for people who want to send a donation to you. My question is that dogs, of course, have a much shorter lifespan than humans. And I'm wondering, with the number of generations that these dogs have been going through since the accident happened more than 30 years ago, what, if anything, has been noticed about either mutations or lifespan or health? That's an interesting question. I'm not a medical professional in terms of veterinarian care or human care, for that matter. You know, I guess after a few years, there are some base observations that I could make. Number one, uh, these dogs are not well taken care of to begin with. So they are like a lot of the stray dogs that you see across Europe if you travel to many European cities. Except for the differences here, some of them are a lot larger because they are breeding in with the wolves in the exclusion zone. So there are some large dogs that live on the site. But, and this is an interesting point that I I didn't really realize until this trip after a few years at the site, it's very rare to see a dog, what I would consider a mature dog, a dog over six or seven years old. I would say the majority of the dogs at the site are between three and four years old. And many of them are new puppies that are born every year. So there doesn't appear to be a very long lifespan that can be expected for a lot of these animals. Uh, Whether or not that's due to health effects from living in the environment that they do or the severe realities of lifestyle in the exclusion zone, I'm not adequately prepared to say. But it is not uncommon to see some type of tumor or growth on some of these animals if you get the chance to get up close enough to one of them. It's not a pristine environment for these animals to live in. And of course, this is an environment that also impacts the people who are living in the town that you were staying in. Is anything known about the health impacts on the people who live there and have been working at Chernobyl and on decommissioning or on the construction of the new containment structure? I think over the last 30 years, you know, there's been a a severe change in the healthcare system since the accident with the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And it's my personal wish that there was better monitoring and healthcare provided for the current and former workers. So there's probably a lot of cases that are slipping through the cracks. But I guess I would break down the health effects into the periods closer to the accident and maybe more of these uh, long-term latent issues that seem to be arising. It's not a secret over there that after the accident in 1986, there was a large increase in terminated pregnancies, miscarriages, and a lot of this was attributed to the exposures. And this is something that, you know, is still discussed if you talk about it with some of these workers that were around at the time. There aren't many people there that today contribute a lot of their health problems to just those events in 1986. It's important to remember this is a 30-year war that they've been fighting just to mitigate the consequences of this accident. So now, 30 years later, when I visited the hospital in the worker town of Slavudic, you know, that is one of the questions that I asked. And there are some reoccurring medical problems that they're seeing. And a, and a lot of them maybe should be expected in terms of mental cognitive functions, psychological issues in terms of maybe something we would kind of refer to as PTSD, as well as a lot of lung and breathing problem issues. So a lot of this, I think, is probably could be expected when you consider that they work in a hazardous industrial environment that also happens to include a lot of radioactive contamination. But even just the radioactive contamination aside, you know, these environments are also pretty hazardous from a worker safety standpoint. You know, as we go through these facilities, the one thing we constantly have to keep in mind is to watch our feet, because after 30 years, the structures are beginning to decay There's holes that are rusting out in the middle of floors in certain areas, and not all of the lights are on, and there are cables running across the floor. So, I mean, it is a a fairly hazardous site just from a worker safety standpoint. And then you start considering the additional hazard of the radioactive contamination. When you go there, what do you do to protect yourself from the radiation that you are clearly being exposed to? There are two main thoughts that I try and keep in mind when I'm on site. Number one, there's the dose, which I cannot avoid. 
And number two is there's the dose which I must do everything to avoid. These come from internal and external sources of radiation. So the goal when I go to Chernobyl is that there is going to be an external exposure. Anytime you walk next to the sarcophagus, you're going to notice increased levels of gamma radiation in the air. That is an inescapable fact and a function of the inverse square principle. What do you mean by the inverse square principle? Briefly, please, for those of us who are scientifically challenged. It just means that the closer you get to the source of a radioactive emission, the stronger the emissions and levels of radioactivity in the air are going to be. If I walk next to a lump of melted fuel and I walk in a circumference of five feet around it, on all directions, it should be about the same level of exposure. And if I back away 15 feet, the level should go down. So that's just a function of how we protect ourselves from radiation. We think of three principles, time, distance, and exposure. So when I'm at the plant, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to limit the amounts of time that I spend in high gamma fields. And I know that when I leave the presence of those fields, I leave the risk. But the more important task is to prevent the internalization of radioactive materials because they continue to disintegrate inside of your body, releasing radiation, which then affects the tissues of your body. And that's a risk that you take with you when you leave the site. So the function that I'm constantly trying to do is to leave the risk at the site and not take any of it back with me. You're a braver man than I. I don't know that I would put myself in that situation with anything other than a total hazmat suit, a military-grade gas mask, and a lot of layers on my feet that I could just strip off individually as time went through so that nothing would get to me. And even then I would be paranoid. So my hat's off to you, Lucas, for your willingness to go there and bring your information and expertise to Chernobyl while bringing back the information that you do. Do you have any final thoughts that you would like to share with the listeners? Well, I think the most important thought that comes to mind is that now is the time to begin to pay closer attention than ever to the activities at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. This is a, the beginning of a transition from a period where we were beginning to get to the point where we could begin to recover some of these materials, and now we are positioned to be able to do this. And it's time for the international community to get educated, to get informed, and to become aware of this process, because it's the same process that we're going to watch in Japan over the next 30 to 50 years. And God forbid if we have a severe accident here in the United States, it's the same process that would be in ahead for us. There are no answers yet to be uncovered. We don't have the magic answers to these types of problems. Otherwise, we would have given them to Ukraine and Japan long ago. So uh, the last message I would have is to stay vigilant and to stay watching and to remain aware. Lucas Hickson, thank you so much for this important and unique first-hand report on what's happening at Chernobyl at this time of great international moment when the new containment structure is in place and for pointing out that it's not an ending. It might be the end of an era, but it certainly also marks the start of the next phase of the cleanup and the future for Chernobyl. And for sharing that with the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat, I want to thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Libby. It's been a pleasure. That was Lucas Hickson. You can follow his work on informable.com. That's E-N-F-O-R-M-A-B-L-E.com. And to contact the Clean Futures Fund, go to cleanfutures.org. We will also post a link up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode number 284. Now here's my reminder that Nuclear Hot Seat relies on your donations to keep bringing you this work. And one of the reasons that we must keep doing it was articulated by Lucas Hickson as we chatted after our interview had concluded. Bless you for the work that you're doing. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for what you're doing. It's a vital importance. You know, doing all of this work doesn't really matter much if it doesn't make a difference and it can't make a difference unless people get aware. And that's uh, really the critical role that you're playing in this huge ball that we find ourselves in. Uh, so thank you so much for your diligence with it. And thank you for the acknowledgement. So help me keep getting the information out that allows you to know what's really going on in the nuclear world. To donate, just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button. As today is Giving Tuesday, you can make a donation, but truly, any day, any time, we are grateful for anything you can contribute. So please, do what you can today. Activist shout-out! This one from Gail Payne, a great graphic designer, a computer whiz, and a terrific activist. This is through Food and Water Watch. New York is gearing up to shut down the Indian Point nuclear reactors, which have been operating without a license and are well beyond their design basis of 40 years. On next Tuesday, December 6, 2016, Governor Cuomo will be hosting his annual birthday fundraiser in New York City. And this is the perfect time to join the demonstration to stop the Cuomo tax. A $7.6 billion bailout for dangerous failing nuclear facilities in upstate New York as well as Indian Point. To make their point, activists are being asked to join together outside the Long Acre Theater in New York City, 220 West 48th Street, to let the wealthy donors, lobbyists, executives, and who knows, maybe Jeffrey Epstein of the Lolita Express who has had Andrew Cuomo on his plane, known colloquially as the Lolita Express. It's time to tell all of those people how you feel about the Cuomo tax. So join together at this fundraiser and turn it into a consciousness raiser. Remember, Indian Point is only 35 miles as the crow flies, or 44.3 driving miles from Broadway, Only 45 minutes from Broadway. Unless there's a kind of traffic jam that's going to end up with gridlock if there's a problem at Indian Point and everybody tries to get out of Dodge at the same time. So really, everybody, if you can, go to the theater, the Long Acre Theater, on December 6th as of 5.30 p.m. and and send a message to Governor Cuomo that this dangerous, disastrous nuclear bailout needs to be sent back to the drawing board and turned into support for genuinely clean, green, renewable energy for New Yorkers. And Bob Alvarez, this is a shout-out directly to you. For those of you who don't know Bob from previous times he's been on Nuclear Hot Seat, he is the senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies and the former senior policy advisor to the Energy Department's Secretary and Deputy Secretary for National Security and the Environment. He served in that post from 1993 to 1999, so the guys got serious creds. Well, Bob wrote about the Hanford B reactor which produced the plutonium exploded over Nagasaki in 1995, and the fact that it was designated as a National Historic Monument because it is considered to be an extraordinary scientific and technological achievement of the 20th century. But Bob wrote, and this was just on a Facebook post off the top of his head, he wrote, It is disingenuous, however, to consider the construction and operation of the world's first large nuclear reactor solely within the window of World War II. By the end of the war, the B reactor was dangerously worn out, requiring a major overhaul to fuel the coming nuclear arms race. And he went on from there with a really cogent analysis. Considering this is just a Facebook post, Bob, the shout-out to you is, please... Turn it into an article, get it published, and send us the link so that we can announce it on the show and send people to read it. Because they deserve to know the kind of double dealing that is going on to say that, on the one hand, it's a National Historic Monument, 
and not bothering to mention that on the other hand, Hanford is the single most contaminated site in the United States and one of the 10 worst on the face of the planet. Here's today's final thought, and it comes from Nobel Prize-winning Belarusian writer Svetlana Alexievich, whose works include Voices from Chernobyl, The Oral History of a Nuclear Disaster, a tremendously moving, deep, powerful book. In an interview in Japan Times, sent to Nuclear Hot Seat, courtesy our favorite fox, De Un Renard, a.k.a. Hervé Courtois, Alexievich called the nuclear catastrophes at Chernobyl and Fukushima events that people cannot yet fully fathom and warned against the hubris, the misplaced pride and arrogance, that humans have the power to conquer nature. The Nobel laureate, who writes in Russian, is known for addressing dramatic and tragic events involving the former Soviet Union, including World War II, the Soviet War in Afghanistan, the 1991 collapse of the communist state, and, of course, the 1986 Chernobyl nuclear disaster. Her style is distinctive in that she presents the testimonies of ordinary people going through traumatic experiences as they speak clearly, directly, without intruding on their narratives. Alexievich, who visited the Tomari nuclear power plant in Hokkaido in 2003, recalled a remark by an official there that a catastrophe like Chernobyl would not happen in Japan because, quote, Japanese are well prepared for quakes and are not drunken, unlike Russians. End quote. She then said through a Russian Japanese interpreter, But ten years later, the wonderful civilization turned into garbage. She was referring, of course, to the 2011 Fukushima core meltdowns. Alexievich went on to say, Humans have occupied a position in nature that they should not. It is impossible for humans to conquer nature. Nature is now rebelling against humans. We need a philosophy for humans and nature to live together. And lest we forget, water is life. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, November 29, 2016. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from miningawareness.wordpress.com, deunrenard.wordpress.com, japantimes.co.jp, realrussiatoday.com, ft.com, sowetolive.co.za, bbc.com, indepthnews.net, Dianuke.org, NEIS.org, NBCBayArea.com, NIRS.org, the karma-killing copywriters at World Nuclear News, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and the resolute planet protectors who gather at the Nuclear Hot Seat site on Facebook, where you are invited to come join us, like us, and share our posts with your friends and family. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, and recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2016, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. And a reminder that if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues from around the world, delivered with as much humor as possible, take a moment in honor of Giving Tuesday or Wednesday or any other day of the week and send a supporting donation to NuclearHotSeat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that out of sight is not out of mind or out of danger, especially when it comes to radioactive nuclear waste. So let's all get to work and not go back to sleep because we have all had our nuclear wake-up call and we are all in the nuclear hot seat. 
nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.